Good morning, Redeemer members and friends. Just before we jump in, I wanted to give you a greeting from Angela and I and our family here in Garhud. Redeemer, we miss you and we long to be back with you. We miss gathering with you on Fridays. We miss the teens and the youth coming over here on Thursdays, the women's Bible studies and the different things that used to happen right here in this room. I wouldn't say our house is quiet these days. Winston and Joseph make sure the volume stays up, uh, but it does feel empty sometimes. And it's a reminder that we long to be back together with you. By God's grace, we are doing well. Uh, We thank you for your prayers and encouragements, and and please know that we're praying for you as well. Okay, well, here to our study now this morning. We're jumping back into the book of Revelation. As you've already heard read, we're looking at chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 in the letter to the church in Sardis. I hope you've been encouraged so far by this series through these letters They can be interesting parts of scripture to study. On one hand, they're they're sort of straightforward addresses to these churches. But then they're also got some interesting symbolism in them. And they're in this apocalyptic book of Revelation. Well, as Pastor Dave said in, in the first of these series, we aren't trying to say everything that could be said about Revelation or even about the letters in this series. But hopefully we can say some helpful things as there's much to be gained from just a plain reading of these words from our Lord Jesus. These letters press into the churches, and and they press into us. They point out dangerous habits and teachings, and, and most of all, they remind us of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the church. And what we're gonna see in this letter to the church of Sardis is, in a sense, very similar to what we've seen in the other letters. There's an introduction, a challenge to repent and or to change, some encouragement, a call to listen, and a promise to those who conquer. And this letter to Sardis also has the same author of the other letters, the Lord Jesus. It's addressed to the church in Sardis from him who has the seven spirits and holds the seven stars. Jesus is the one who has the heavens in his hands and he has all authority over the church. These letters are coming to the churches from the heart of the chief shepherd who's gathering his flock together and he's protecting them from the wolves and their false teachings, from the sufferings of life in a broken world and from sin that so easily entangles them. Jesus is the one who gave himself up for the church, purchasing a people for God with his own sacrificial death on the cross so that those who turn to him by faith and repentance might walk in the newness of life that they might be awake to his purposes in this world and they they could endure with confidence until the day he returns. That's who's writing these letters. So with these similarities and author and structure uh, to the letters, what is being said to the church in Sardis in particular? And what, what can we, Redeemer Church of Dubai, in May 2020, as we go through the disruptions and challenges of COVID-19, what can we hear from this letter? Well, as we hear what the Lord says to Sardis, I want to look at three things today that that I think we see arising from this letter. Number one is is knowing if you're alive. Number two is living like you're awake. Number three is conquering. So number one, knowing if you're alive. Jesus says to the church in Sardis, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. 
This church was known in some ways for being alive, for having spiritual vitality, vibrancy, and energy. But Jesus is saying, you are actually dead. People think you're alive, but you are actually dead. Now, I don't know about each one of you, but I know for some of you, your greatest fear might be the opposite. Your greatest fear uh, might be having a reputation for being dead, but you're alive. Have you heard of these stories? I I think they might be fake news. Uh, But some some person is incapacitated due to some accident or illness, maybe COVID-19. The person can't talk or move, but they can hear and they know what's going on. And the doctor comes by their hospital bed and pronounces them dead. And they get sent off to be buried in the ground alive. How terrible would that be to be alive and and have people saying that you're dead? Well, I don't know if that's a fear that you have. But what Jesus is saying is that worse is people thinking you're alive when you're actually dead. And worse than that is you thinking that you're alive when you're actually dead. Jesus isn't talking here about death from a virus, not physical death. He's not, he, what he is talking about is spiritual death. He's talking about how they have a reputation for having, been found, having found new life in Christ, having been born again by the Spirit, but they're actually not. They're actually dead. It seems as we read later on that there is a, a group of truly alive people, of believers there in Sardis, but he begins the letter in this way as it seems that all of them need to be reminded that there's a a huge group of them attached to this church that don't truly know how to be alive to God. No, friends, this is such an important thing for us to grasp. A reputation for being spiritually alive does not mean you are actually spiritually alive. Beginning in the early to mid-1700s, across Europe and North America, there was a series of revivals called the Great Awakening. It was a time when there was an outbreak of the gospel. Christ was being proclaimed widely. There was great enthusiasm about living according to the Bible and attendance at church gatherings and public open-air preachings were off the charts. Pastors and preachers like George Whitfield and John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards, they were the leaders during this time. And Edwards in specific was instrumental in preaching sermons from his pulpit in New England like sinners in the hands of an angry God that the Lord used to spur revival in that surrounding region. Edwards was enthusiastic about the revival. He was part of the source of it. But he also grew concerned about the danger of people getting caught up in the wave of it all. And rather than truly finding new life, they were just picking up some of the behaviors of the saved. They were going to some of the meetings of the believers. They were using some of the vocabulary of the born again, but they were merely gaining a reputation for being alive when they were actually dead. To help with that problem, Edwards wrote what is now a very famous book called Religious Affections, where he he tries to show from the Bible what are the true signs of the Spirit at work in someone's life, and what are the signs that are unreliable or false signs that the Spirit is not at work and someone actually might be dead. So I, I want to put that list up here. Uh, for, for some of you, for all of you to look at. And I want you to see some of these signs and I want you to tell me which ones are the unreliable ones. Which of these signs could be just as true of someone who is dead? Okay, here's the list. Here's, here's some picks from, from Edward's list of reliable, unreliable signs. You tell me which ones are the unreliable signs. Here's number one. A remarkable ability to mention texts of Scripture. Number two, being fluent, fervent, and abundant in talking about the gospel. 
Number three, the body being greatly affected during worship into spontaneous dances or convulsions. Number four, exceeding confidence about a supernatural experience. Number five, greatly increased desire to praise and glorify God. Number six, spending much time and being zealously engaged in the activities of religion. Number seven, an appearance of love in their behavior. Well, which of these signs do you think would have been part of someone who has a reputation for being alive but is actually dead? Make your pick of which one of these is unreliable. Maybe share it with those, of, those who you're watching with. Well, here's the answer. All of them. All of those signs are unreliable signs of true living faith. You're able to quote scripture. You love to talk about religion. You break out into dance. You know some experience of healing. You love to honor God. You spend your time doing lots of religious stuff. You act loving sometimes. All of these things may be just giving you the reputation of being alive, but friend, are you actually dead? How do you know that you're alive? We have to know where we're starting, and we have to know where to look in order to be alive. As, as we quickly scan over this passage, we see the dire state of man's starting point. Spiritually dead and facing judgment by God, he's coming again. And friends, before we start getting too excited about having a reputation for being alive, have we truly addressed our deadness? Have we realized that the only thing we can build on in our abilities is a foundation of a rotting corpse? Friend, I don't care how many people have told you that you're doing just fine, that you are a good religious person. If you have not truly looked at yourself and said with Isaiah, woe is me, for I am lost and I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Friend, if you haven't honestly realized your deadness without Christ, you won't have been able to know of your life in Christ. So we need to know where we're starting, that we're dead. And we need to know where to look, Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 5, there's this stunning picture of God speaking to God, that Jesus will speak to the Father on behalf of man, and for those he does, their name will be in the book of life with no chance of being erased. Paul puts it this way, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, who himself was given as a ransom for all. Jesus mediates. He goes between God and man as he is fully God and he's able to speak with authority to the counsel of God and he's fully man, having been able to fulfill the law on their behalf and pay the ransom in his death on the cross. Jesus says, I will confess your name before my father. You see, if, if you go back to where we started, we saw that these folks in the Sardis had a reputation for being alive, but they were dead. The word therefore, reputation, <clears throat> is actually the same word translated name when Jesus says that he will confess your name before my father. So what Jesus is saying is, look, I've heard of the name that you're making for yourself of, of being alive, and I want you to know it's a lie. And I will not, it will not stand in the day of judgment. But I want to offer you a name that I will speak on your behalf. And I will place it in the book of life. And I want you to know that it is a true name and it will stand forever. How do we know that we're alive? When we stop trying to make a name for ourselves from our deadness 
And we start looking to the name of Jesus who gives life. So we've gotten through verse one so far. So we need to pick up the pace of this study and look at the other two main things that we see here. Look at knowing that you're alive. Now let's look at living like you're awake and then conquering. Well, living like you're awake, where do, where do we see that in these verses? Having told the church in Sardis to be careful that they are not building up a name for themselves leading to death, but rather they should find life in the name of Jesus, the Lord now brings a different theme to his exhortation. From talking about death to life, now the exhortation moves from being asleep to being awake. Verse 2 starts, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you, yet you, will. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Their works were incomplete, these people in Sardis. Their memory of the gospel message was fading. They were mingling with the world. That, that's this idea of soiled garments. A few of them will walk with Christ in white, but most of them are clinging to soiled garments that will be all they have on the last day. Elsewhere in Revelation, this, this idea of being soiled has to do with engaging in idolatry and pagan practices to appease the gods or the, the local economic uh, situation so that they can still gain from the world around them, still have a good name around, in the world around them. Well, to, to connect this idea of waking up in soiled garments, think about it this way. <laughs> I wear a white shirt every day, so I know a thing or two about soiled garments. If I spill coffee on my shirt at breakfast in the morning, and then I say to Angela, bye, honey, I'm going to go and jump on a Zoom, she's going to say, what, are you still asleep? Your garments are soiled. Those in Sardis, they were still asleep to how their lack of repentance, their lack of remembering the gospel is keeping them in a very dangerous place of having soiled garments on the day of judgment. Their efforts to have a reputation of being alive with other Christians while having a reputation with the non-believers in Sardis of engaging in evil has meant that they have got soiled garments. Maybe you've heard the story of uh, the emperor's new clothes. That's where there's these two tailors and, and they promise an emperor a new suit of clothes. And they, when they present it to him, they say that it is so beautiful that only those who are smart and glorious can see it. Those who are foolish and incompetent can't see it. And so the emperor, he can't see it. But he doesn't want to appear foolish, so he says, oh, how beautiful these clothes are. But the reality is that tailors never made any clothes at all. They were just making everybody believe that the clothes were invisible to them. So when the emperor parades around the city in his new clothes, no one dares to say that they don't see what's going on because they are afraid they will be seen as stupid. Finally, a child cries out, he's not wearing anything at all. Well, in a sense, likewise, Jesus is calling out to those in Sardis. You're parading around like you're wearing new robes of white. But wake up, you've got the same filthy rags on you always have had. For some of you, as soon as I start talking about that, you know the areas in your life where you are tolerating sin, where you're engaging with the world with a desire for its interests, for fame, for power and money and pleasure. For some of you, 
You've been around the church long enough, though, to, to be really good at hiding those soiled bits of your garments. You're hiding from other believers and maybe even from yourself. So let me just invite you, invite all of you to be willing to lay down your passion for your own reputation, to be willing to humbly ask the Lord to expose any area of our heart where idolatry or pride or anger or other ungodly traits remain. Because here's the point. It is not the absence of sin in your life that is a sign of being awake, but it is your awareness of how to deal with your sin that shows you're awake. We want to be those who have looked to Jesus for new life and have found salvation in his name, not our reputation. We remember the gospel, that having the law fulfilled in every way, Christ died on the cross for our sins, paying the penalty that we deserved, and now has been resurrected from the dead, offering new life to all who would believe. We've remembered that message. When we do, repentance becomes a joy to us. We feel the pain of our sin but we feel the joy of acknowledging it and turning from it by the power of Christ. So Christian, wake up. Stop being lulled into thinking that maintaining a reputation with the world is not actively against the calling we have in Christ. Stop trying to bring your robes to Christ and say, look how white they are. Come to Christ and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. My robes are spoiled. Would you help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace? And Jesus will say yes, and here is your white robe. The emperor is not getting lying tailors to make him fake clothes. The emperor is handing out perfect clothes that only he can make. Redeemer Church, wake up, look at your garments, see your need to repent, to remember the gospel, and to walk in the ways of Christ. And now we come to verse 5. And here we end with this idea of conquering. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life, is what Jesus says. The concept of conquering comes up in each of the seven letters to the churches here in Revelation. It's a key element of these letters written to these churches that are suffering, they're in need, and they're struggling with sin, and Jesus wants them to conquer. Conquering can make us think of war-making kings. It's Xerxes against King Leonidas of Sardis on his way to conquer Greece. But conquering can also carry the idea of endurance in the face of great challenge. Someone who reaches the top of Mount Everest is said to have conquered the mountain. But really? The mountain is absolutely massive, 8,848 meters high. The weather is extreme, changing often and mostly for the more dangerous. The threat of deadly avalanche is constant. To get to the top requires great assistance of clothing and gear and lots of divine help, other fellow climbers. And yet, with all of that assistance, with all that is outside of their control that came together to help them succeed, with, with how little of the mountain actually comes under their authority, none of it we still say that someone who gets to the top conquered the mountain. And this is the idea of conquering as patient endurance in the face of severe challenge. And that is what Jesus has in mind for the churches in Revelation. Endurance. Stay the course. Don't get caught up in your reputation of being alive if you're dead. Don't get caught up 
and your reputation with the idolatrous world around you. Don't let the pressures and challenges of this world make you cling to your name and what you can make it be. Don't let your fears about famine or persecution or disease lead you to living a life more dead than alive, more asleep than awake. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 10. This letter to Sardis is almost an echo of. Fear not, therefore, you are worth more than the sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. How do we endure? How do we conquer? We wake up. We strive to live our life in a way that acknowledges the one who has already endured, who has already conquered, who already has all authority in heaven and on earth. And when we do, he will acknowledge us before his Father. This life is full of griefs and groans, struggles and sins, divisions and tunes of lament. But we look forward to the day when having been found in the name of Jesus, having lived as a confession to his name, we find that we've endured to the end. And now we find ourselves as more than conquerors through him who loved us. These things in, in verse 4 and 5 about receiving white robes of purity, have, being counted as worthy to enter the joy of God's presence, about eternal security with our name, unerasable in the book of life, about being known by name by the Father and covered by the righteousness of Jesus' name. Friends, these are not conditional possibilities for those who by their labors achieve perfection now. These are covenant promises to those who look and who remember and who repent. And they look to Jesus who labored perfectly on our behalf and became the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Oh, may our hearts be consumed by him. When that day arrives and our race is won, when our griefs give way to deliverance, we will fully know as we're fully known. All our groans will end as new songs begin and a multitude from every tribe and tongue wearing robes of white will stand before his throne and our hearts will be so consumed by him that we'll never cease to praise. Friends, let's stand and sing of his grace.